0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Twenty years
1: ago, it seemed that traditionalism was an esoteric and irrelevant set of beliefs. Since then, powerful people, sympathetic to its ideas, have overturned that perception. In the US and Russia, there are presidential advisers who've drawn on traditionalism to disastrous effect. The Trump presidency and the war in Ukraine both owe something to traditionalism. Well, Mark Sedgwick has written, Traditionalism, the Radical Project for Restoring the Sacred Order. And he joins me now. Welcome to you. Thank you very much for inviting me. And there's, there's a lot to talk about here. I think we should just get the broad idea of what traditionalism consists of. So uh, there's an idea of a single, timeless, ancient...
2: Sacred Creed, isn't there? What what would that creed look like? It's 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 a very good place to start because this is absolutely central to traditionalism. And in fact, the tradition in the title traditionalism is what the traditionalists call this single time as ancient sacred uh, wisdom. So it's quite important to understand because well, when one hears the word traditionalist, one might just think it's just people who, who like traditions. It isn't people who just like old-fashioned stuff. Uh, it is specifically based on the belief in a single-timeless ancient creed. And this, this is, is also known as perennialism which is a term which is probably most familiar to those who work with religious studies and things like that. The idea of perennialism, or what some people call the perennial philosophy or the primordial tradition, different terms are used for it, is that the all the different religious and spiritual practices that we see today around the world share a single common origin.
1: Yes, and, and that that single common origin the you know, the beliefs that, that, that were there at you know in an ancient time are, are evident there are traces of them today
2: that's the point, exactly exactly and and one of the things that traditionists and actually many other people do is is to sort of collect the contemporary expressions and try to work out what the original idea was because the original idea obviously vanishes in the midst of time and there are different sources that that people look at. Some of them look at Vedanta in Hinduism. Some of them look at Plato. And there's this, this idea that Plato had open teachings and hidden oral teachings. And actually, I mean, as a historian of religions, if one tries to trace certain ideas and beliefs backwards in time, one does actually tend to end up quite often, for quite a lot of purposes, with Plato. The But, you know, where did Plato get it all from? I mean, at, the, at this point, as a scholar or as a traditionalist perennialist, it, it, it sort of disappears, so you can't really see it. But, yeah, from a scholarly point of view, I mean, I'm a scholar, not a traditionalist. From a scholarly point of view, it's quite possible. It's quite plausible.
1: Can you give us examples of places where these beliefs are bubbling up still in the view of traditionalists? I mean I think you mentioned Christian monasticism for example.
2: Yeah, yeah. As, as far as Christianity, most traditionalists tend to be quite critical of modern Christianity and and sometimes of Christianity as a whole. So although there are Christian traditionalists, mostly orthodox, they are more of an exception and the typical places that traditionist look today as as i mentioned earlier to vedanta in hinduism and to sufism the the idea is that of the traditional practices which are still around today and by traditional is meant representing that original primordial tradition. Uh, of those which are around today, the general view is that the most accessible of them is, is Sufism.
1: But if, okay, so let's take the Hindu one for, for a moment, because that's quite clear, I think, is, is that the element of Hinduism that uh, traditionalists think has sort of ancient truths in it would be the caste system in particular, is that right?
2: Well, the caste system they see as a feature of traditional civilization by which they mean civilizations organized in accordance with this this ancient wisdom the i mean the the caste system is an aspect of society that interests them and as in terms of source texts what interests them is the vedas but of course the problem one of the problems with the caste system is that it's very difficult in Hindu terms for you or me to become Hindus because if we do, according to most understandings, we, uh, we're in the lowest possible cost. So that, I mean, there are some people who somehow got around this, but that's a fundamental problem for a, a traditionalist trying to follow the, the Hindu tradition, which is a reason why although in terms of teachings and understandings there's a tendency to look at the Hindu texts in terms of actions and activities there's a general tendency to turn towards Sufism
1: right and and so what elements of Sufism are appealing to traditionalists
2: it's the idea that that Sufism aims at a Variety of self-realization, <coughs> which is in practice, it, 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 it's 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 said to be a bit difficult to describe because you have to experience it. But it, it it it's often described in terms of union with the infinite, or union with the divine, or union with the with the um, the universal spirit, or something like that. So that is what. Sufism aims at, among other things, because in reality, you know, Sufism is quite a complex phenomenon. takes different forms and so forth. The, the the aspect of it, which appeals to the to the traditionalists is the idea of Sufism as a path to that union or possibly reunion, because there there are certain views of where the human spirit comes from, which say that it actually comes from that infinite world soul divine in the first place which makes it reunion
1: yeah which is quite interesting because what you get this strange combination really of far-right writers and as we'll hear some of them sort of dabbling in in world war ii fascism a, 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 and Sufism, where you know the, the sort of visual image of Sufism would be, I don't know, a whirling dervish uh, in some sort of ecstatic state, and and they're 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 two quite different images, aren't
2: they? They are, and that's because the basic idea behind traditionalism, and there are really two basic ideas. One of them is the idea of the primordial tradition that we just talked about. The the other is also a critique of modernity, as being the negation of traditions being positively evil, frankly, so those two basic ideas take people in very different directions because some people decide to get politically involved, some people understand things in terms of in social terms, in terms of social structures, caste system, and stuff like that, uh, and that takes them in one direction, and some people understand it in primarily spiritual and religious terms and that takes them in a completely different direction and it's it's important to remember that although the political traditionalists will tend to be interested in the spiritual the spiritual traditionalists the sufi traditionalists very often have no interest in the political and, and find the whole political aspect of traditionalism positively embarrassing to the extent that they claim that actually it's got nothing to do with it and it's, it's nothing to do with them and nothing to do with anything and, and, and it's a different phenomenon. But it isn't really a different phenomenon because it does derive from the same ideas.
1: I wonder if I could just ask you to run us through some of the leading thinkers and writers th- through time on traditionalism, um, uh, the sort of verbal equivalent of a paragraph
2: on each. First of all, Guénon. Guénon is where it all starts. René Guénon, French, very difficult to know how to describe him. He, he, he often described himself as a metaphysician. Sometimes he's pro, he's referred to as as an orientalist. Sometimes he's referred to as a philosopher. But anyhow, it, the the whole idea of traditionalism starts with him. In actually starts in 1910, but really gets going in the books that he wrote and published in the 1920s. And it's him that puts together the the idea of perennialism the idea of the traditional of traditional philosophy and so forth which has existed with other people and the critique of modernity which also exists with other people loads of people have been have been critics of modernity but he puts those two together and he also grounds the thing grounds the whole idea in his reading of especially of, of Vedanta but also of other texts from other religions and he also sets one way forward because in 1930 he leaves Paris for Cairo and lives the rest of his life as a Sufi and as a Muslim under the name of Abdul Wahid Yahya.
1: Next, next uh, leading traditionalist thinker, Evola.
2: Yes, Kenon goes in, in the religious direction in Evola Goes in the political direction because Ev- Evola was Evola was an Italian originally, a painter, not a bad painter. His works sell for uh, a certain amount nowadays, also. And he was already interested in magic and the occult and Mussolini when he discovered traditionalist thought. So he actually added traditionalism to his pre-existing interests and produced a distinctively political version of traditionalism and evola is 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 really important today people are reading him Ever more and more. And I mean, look, he is, of course, the guy who got involved with, with fascism. He wasn't actually a fascist. He never joined the fascist party. But he he, he at one point advised Mussolini on race. And after the fall of the fasc, after the fall of Mussolini and the, and the fascists in Italy, he was one of those who left Italy and took refuge with the in in, in Nazi Germany and he was he was friends with the SS and people like that. He was also important because he was one of the few people who, because he'd never been a sort of proper fascist, he'd never been a member of the party or the establishment or anything like that. After the total collapse of fascism and the end of the Second World War, he was one of the few people left on the Italian right who was... Not tarnished by the disaster of fascism, so he actually had sort of two careers. He had he had one during the fascist period, with the fascists and the SS and the Nazis and all that sort of stuff, and then he had one after, uh, again in the in the sixties f- and and the early seventies. And actually, he's now got a third career. I mean, he's been dead for years, but he's now got a third career as one of the most important far-right authors around today that everybody's reading
1: and then the third one who you particularly highlight in your book is uh, swiss and his name is difficult uh, so why don't you pronounce sean
2: properly <laughs> you've got it right
1: <laughs> uh, what about the
2: first name though <laughs> ah Fritchov <Fridtjof. laughs> so Fridtjof, Sean. Yeah, I mean he's he's in he's in some ways the sort of equivalent of Evelyn on the on the religious Sufi side. So if if you if you think of Ginnar starting the whole thing off, and then the the most prominent writer and actor on the political side as Avula, and then the most prominent writer and actor on the Sufi side is Firdaus so what do we say of him, Swiss? And he he founded a Sufi order, a Sufi tarika of his own. Initially based in Switzerland, moved later to the United States, and opened branches all over the place—not um, in 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 Europe, in the United States. A uh, little one in, in Latin America, Pakistan, places like Morocco, places like that. And the, the point the point about Shuan is this Sufi order, which was called the Mariameya. And the point about the Mariameya is that it wasn't particularly large, but its members were all pretty high quality intellectuals and they quite a lot of them were academics they wrote books they appeared on television they had lists here. I mean one of them Saeed Hussein Nasser in in America is really prominent has been really prominent in in the public debate in in various areas so so Sean's importance and influence lies in what he did, but also in what his followers did.
1: Now, what you said about Evelyn makes the link with the far right. Yeah. And I'm just going to run through some things that traditionalists get worked up about. And perhaps you could just say a word or two about each of these. So, modernity.
2: Well, that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, as I say, that's one of the foundational ideas, because modernity is defined as the negation of the tradition. The, the whole traditionalist idea of history is that things get worse. And one of the ways that you can tell that things get worse is that nowadays a lot of idiots think that there's something called progress. And the fact that people can believe in the possibility of progress just shows how much they have lost touch with the primordial tradition. So modernity is the negation of the traditional order, the traditional philosophy, and is full of ridiculous illusions like democracy and equality and gender equality and human rights, you know, the whole thing. I mean, almost, almost all the things that the average person would list as achievements of modernity are dismissed by the traditionalists as illusions and or completely unimportant relative to the real stuff. And the real stuff is the traditional, perennial traditional philosophy
1: yeah so you've already covered a couple of the things i was going to ask you about democracy yeah. the a lot of suspicion about that as being a modern non traditionalist sort of form of government really uh the the left
2: yeah i mean we, you mentioned you mentioned the caste system earlier hmm. and and this gives us two models of structuring society and government and you know this the, the the democracy i mean in some ways it's 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 quite fun because in some ways the the traditionalists here turn out to be Marxists because they have you know you know how how Marx has this series of transfers of, of, of power you know first it's the feudal aristocracy and then it passes to the bourgeoisie and then hope the Marxists it will pass from the bourgeoisie to the working people giving us the perfect communist society well. Uh, Guénon more or less agrees with this, he just turns it the other way around and says that originally authority and power lay with a spiritual elite, a priesthood, intellectuals like him, uh, and then it it passed, uh, unfortunately, to the military class. And then it passed even more, unfortunately, to the bourgeoisie. And nowadays, with democracy and giving votes to everybody and pretending that people can rule themselves and stuff like that, it it has passed to the lowest caste, the proletariat.
1: And does that mean that traditionalists today would hope to return to rule by a spiritual elite?
2: They hope that, in in general, and you know, there's a variety of views on this. But I think I think one could say that all of them would like to see the authority of the spiritual elite restored. The extent to which they think this is actually possible varies, because there's this whole idea of decline, and that understanding of history as decline rather than progress can be rather depressing (laughs) because if it's all inevitably collapsing and really the next major thing is the end of the world and the apocalypse you know what can we do so some say you know it's just not going to happen which, by the way, is is one reason for taking your traditionalism off and sitting in a corner and being a Sufi and trying to uh, establish your own spiritual connection with the transcendent and not wasting your time on any of this political nonsense because it's pointless. But some of them think that this political stuff isn't entirely pointless and that even if the general direction is decline, one can occasionally arrest decline and do something good and useful uh, in in a particular place in a particular time. Even if you can't reverse the whole direction of history.
1: And and where do to, to you know, where do capitalism and nationalism fit into all of
2: this? Modern, I'm afraid. Both are modern. Yeah, right. <laughs> sorry. Capitalism—that's these merchant bourgeois people. So what, what would the traditionists favor Re- return to the to, to to the primordial tradition return to a system based around the primordial tradition, which it says is going to be capitalist and it 's not going to be based on nations either uh, the closer we can get to a traditional order based around the class system.
1: Uh, other areas of life in which traditionalists are, are active and thinking and, and producing work. So the, there is an artistic tradition. Tell us about that.
2: Yes, exactly. And this, you see, I mean, this, this isn't particularly political at all. The traditionalists, all of them, have had, to some extent, an interest in in art. Some of them more than others. I mean, Gaynor himself wasn't terribly interested in, in art. But one of the earliest traditionalists was a guy called Ananda Kumaraswamy, who was an art historian. And he was he was sort of of, of of Sri Lankan British origin. And he wound up working at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Uh, and he, his speciality was, was Indian art, and Indian art is, of course, very symbolic. So one of his big things was that we shouldn't try to evaluate Indian art in terms of modern Western aesthetics, because actually, in those terms, it isn't terribly interesting, because that's not what it's meant to be in the first place. We have to understand Indian art in terms of symbolism, in terms of the picture it draws of the transcendent, and in terms of the access it therefore gives us to the transcendent. So what Kumaraswamy said about Indian art, other people come along and say about medieval cathedrals, Medieval painting now not not post-medieval painting because post-medieval painting is modern and as we all know now modernity is 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 really bad and um, to be ignored now this gives the the, the traditionalists who are interested in music I have a slight problem here because you know generally modernity is dated by traditionalists to start with the uh, with the Renaissance and. You know a lot of people would argue that some Renaissance, post-renaissance music is actually quite good, and the the leading the most the best known and most important musical traditionalist was an English composer called sir john taverner who who is is quite well known, and you know i mean he he's, he actually said it's ridiculous. we cannot say that Mozart and Beethoven and all these guys are are completely worthless." Partly, because he was a real musician you know, not not a theorist, he was a composer, and so forth. Uh, he took a slightly more nuanced picture on that, but he, he, he even if he wasn't going to condemn everything that had been written since the Renaissance, he understood music in terms of a representation of the divine, giving access to the divine, and actually said that a lot of his later work was an attempt at Producing or recovering not the perennial philosophy, but what he called perennial music, so he was drawing on other non Western musical traditions and and trying to do for music what a lot of the other traditionalists had been doing for religious thought, but you know again, the point the central point is that music gives us. Potentially, access to the perennial philosophy, the perennial tradition,
1: and, and in vi- visual art, it's it, is codes. Are codes a part of it
2: always or not? So it's, it's codes and symbolism are a part of it, according to most traditionalists. And I mean, Shuan himself was an amateur painter. Who produced uh what some people called icons, which where where the symbolism was very carefully worked into the compositions now Evelyn was a good painter, Schuon was not a good painter i mean his 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 compositions really have no value beyond the symbolism he's put into them
1: Schuon would have been thinking that the, the his purpose was to to Unlock ancient truths through this symbolism. Indeed,
2: indeed, yeah, indeed. Yeah. But but you see, this is where I mean, this is where it's it's quite interesting to compare the views of Tavener, who was an extremely talented composer, with people who who were purely theorists about this sort of thing, because that Tavener understood that that a real work of art cannot just reproduce symbolism in a, a sort of um, school textbook basis. And it has to have an element of creative genius in it to be of any value. And Taverner himself, he had that creative genius, and Schuon, I'm afraid, did not.
1: At the popular end of the uh, sort of artistic expression, it, just listening to you speak made me think of Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> A traditionalist film?
2: Uh, in some ways, yes. In Pop traditionalism. <laughs> you sound very suspicious of it. Well, to be totally honest, it's so long since I've seen it that I can't remember it. <laughs> OK. Right, yeah. All right. Now then,
1: let's, let's run through some... Some of these uh, leading proponents of some of these ideas now, yeah. Because one of the you know one of the reasons this is such an interesting topic is is because of the powerful people who who believe some of these things, yeah. And uh, we did a previous podcast about Steve Pannon's sort of flirtation with this. He never would quite say he was a traditionalist, but he shares a lot of these views, right?
2: He he's, he's he he did say that he was very imp- inspired by Geno and by traditionalism, and he does indeed share certain traditionalist perspectives and i mean in in this he is quite typical of what's going on nowadays because you know being a traditionalist is not like joining the catholic church you know there there isn't a single official organization with an official set of beliefs uh it's 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 more like developing a a liking for post-impressionist painting, or something like that, um, it 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 becomes part of. Very often, it becomes part of people's worldviews and understandings, an inspiration for them, but not the only thing that they think.
0: Slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Well, let, let me ask you then. What what would how would you describe the relationship between traditionalism and some other people? Mm. Um, Jordan Peterson.
2: Jordan Peterson is is an odd case, and that is because. His, his One of his starting points, he has two starting points. Okay, One of them is his experience as a clinical psychologist, and the other one is his reading of ancient myth, especially as presented by the Romanian-American scholar Mircea Eliade. And Eliade was in his youth very much influenced by the traditionalist book. So, the, the 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 Peterson's focus on the value of myth, ancient myth, is essentially traditionalist. So that part of his inspiration puts him in the traditionalist camp. And by the way, he often describes himself as a traditionalist. But you know, he never. I've never seen him cite so uh, I don't know whether he's even read him. I sent him an interview request some time ago and I never got a response to it. So, I mean, in 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 some ways, he's a traditionalist fellow traveller rather than a traditionalist.
1: Two names in politics, Bolsonaro in Brazil and Dugin in Russia.
2: Bolsonaro uh, was, of course, the practical politician rather than a, a philosopher or thinker. But Bolsonaro was a great admirer of a man called Olavo de Carvalho. And Carvalho, I mean, to the extent of his acceptance speech after he'd won the election, he had four books on the table in front of him. One of them was the Bible, one of them was the Brazilian Constitution, one of them was Churchill's History of the Second World War, and the other one was a book by this guy, Olavo, as Brazilian Portuguese tends to use first names. So Olavo was an Uh, ex-traditionalist. In his youth, he'd been a fully signed up traditionalist and had actually run the Brazilian branch of Schoen Sufi order. But then he moved away from that and reinvented himself as a Catholic philosopher. But he retained... The traditionalist critique of modernity, which he applied very much to, to to Brazilian conditions, and and Bolsonaro seems to to have accepted this. I mean, that's what he really admired in Carvalho. Of course, the other half of it. I mean, if you if you if you want to be a a, a very public Catholic philosopher, uh, you don't really want to emphasize the fact. But you spent part of your youth as, as a Sufi, so he tended to deny that bit, or certainly downplay that bit. We've quite often got these pairs of the practical politician and the intellectual influence, and we've got the pair of Trump, the one could call him practical politician, uh, and and Bannon, the influential advisor. And then we've got Bolsonaro and Olavo. According to some people's understanding, we have Putin and Dugin. Now, I'm not actually a fan of that understanding because the the, the relationship between Dugin and Putin is quite different from the relationship between Trump and Bannon, and Bolsonaro and Alavo we, we don't even know if Putin and Dugin have ever met but the reason Dugin matters in Russia is that he his critique of modernity and his understanding his application of the traditionalist paradigm to geography fit very well with what Putin appears to think anyhow and contribute to the a certain general understanding in Russia of what's going on and and here it's the application to geography which is is so important at the moment, because Dugin, at the beginning of his career, scratched his head and said, "All right, tradition, which is good." Modernity, which is bad. Modernity, that's the United States. Tradition, that's Russia and the surrounding Eurasian world. So for Dugin, the struggle between the West and Russia is the struggle between modernity and tradition. And frankly is also the struggle between good and evil and this gives us a a very very powerful understanding of what's going on at present now some people some people think that putin invaded ukraine because dugin thought it was a cool idea that is just not true. And Putin had his own reasons. But his own reasons are mixed up with the analysis of a large group of people in Russia. And that analysis is influenced by Dugin's thought. I mean, he wrote a book some years ago called Fundamentals of Geopolitics, which was the Russian equivalent in some way of Samuel Huntington's book on the clash of civilizations. Now, I think that's, that's closer to, 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 to what was going on. And Huntington did not cause the invasion of Iraq, but he contributed to an atmosphere in which the American invasion of Iraq seemed like a really good idea, which it wasn't. And in the same way, Dugin has contributed to an atmosphere where the invasion of the Ukraine seemed like a really good idea, which it wasn't.
1: Can I then ask you to broaden this out to other places? Because I don't have names here, and maybe you do or maybe you don't, but uh, there have been traditionalist sympathizers, I think, in Hungary with this whole Mm, shift in the... National mood and national debate in in Hungary, and, and also on the French New Right. Isn't that right? So, yeah. what's happening there and elsewhere?
2: Yeah, Hungary is, as we all know, very much on the right, and there. And we think of Hungary and the right in terms of Viktor Orban, but in fact, Orban wasn't the only Hungarian politician on the right there was another guy called gabor vona who ran another party which was sort of competing with orban's party and the hungarian that the, the he gabor vona had an adviser called tibor baranyi who replicates this pattern we've seen of the partnership between the practical politician, that's Tibor von that's Gabor Vona, and the uh, intellectual advisor influence, that is Tibor Baranyi. Of course, in, in Hungary, in the end, Vona never became prime minister, Orban hang on to that. So the pattern I mean, the the Trump-Bannon pattern is a national leader and a traditionalist, or partly traditionalist. The Hungarian pattern is a would-be national leader who didn't quite make it, and a traditionalist um, advisor. So, that's Hungary. France, well, we don't have that pattern. Uh, Macron is not urban. the the the, the sort of uh, runner-up in recent French elections, of course, has been what is now called the National Rally. There are certainly readers of Evola and supporters of traditionalism in that. This is because I mean the what's called the French New Right, which is a an intellectual movement which was established as the rightist response to 1968, and very influential on the whole of the European New Right, and the the names here uh, are known to people who take an interest in these things. First and foremost, a guy called Alain de Benoît, who's still around, old, but still active. Benoît and his friends, they published books, they organize seminars, they have three or four journals, at, 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 you know, more theoretical, more popular, etc., etc. So their thought was extremely influential and it included Evola and political traditionalism. They're not, you know, just like Dugin starts with traditionalism and adds all sorts of other influences and remains fundamentally faithful to the original traditionalist critique of modernity and understanding of the opposing sacred tradition. So the the French New Right, in, in a similar way, includes traditionalism and the traditionalist critique of modernity and the traditionalist influence in a spiritual alternative, it includes that into its own world of thought. And,
1: and one last name for you, which is one of the more intriguing ones, because um, I don't think many people will make this association, uh, King Charles.
2: yes. So well, a, tr- a yeah. traditionalist? Yes, really. I mean more of a spiritual traditionalist than a political traditionalist, thank God I might add actually. Um because there's he 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 was he he was he's an enthusiast of Taverner. He's supported an art school which presented and taught the traditionalist understanding of art, so uh and 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 he you know he was friends with traditionalist Sufis and things like this his his major traditionalist work is a book that he wrote a few years ago called Harmony and it's very clear that the harmony he's talking about in that book is tradition is the perennial tradition and in in that book, he talks, of course, a lot about the environment and agriculture, and there he's very much following the analysis of iranian American traditionalist who was one of the earliest people to draw attention to the environmental crisis and so forth this guy this this iranian American understands the root cause of the environmental crisis and and all the dreadful things that are going on at present as modernity as the loss of tradition and the fundamentally wrong nature of modernity and prince charles in this book follows very closely this analysis now as as king he's 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 doing other things from what he used to do as as, as prince charles but he clearly follows the traditionalist, religious, environmental, artistic, etc., traditionalist understanding. There is no sign that he follows the traditionalist political understanding. I don't know that he's even aware of it he certainly isn't a fascist or a reader of or anything
1: like that. Yeah, and it actually it fits in with his interfaith <coughs> ideas, right? Because if you if you think there's an ancient truth that's informing a lot of modern religions, then that does lead to the kind of you know, very tolerant position King Charles has on those issues.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Okay, so I've decided to call this podcast Post-Traditionalism uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that we already had one called The Future of <laughs> traditionalism, but but also because exactly as you described, a lot of the current advocates of these ideas are not buying a canon of beliefs and and espousing them. They're sort of drawing on this tradition of traditionalism, if you like. And, you know, you've used the phrase post-traditionalism. That's where it is in politics now and in, as you say, spiritual and artistic and other areas. So my last question to you really is, what is the future of post-traditionalism? Is it not important? You know, is, has it has its moment gone with Trump and Bolsonaro, or or is it important and could it inform political developments ahead?
2: I, th- I think it is very likely to inform political developments ahead. Sometimes I think of traditionalist politics as a a, a boat floating on on the sea, and as the tide comes in and the level of the water goes up, so do a number of boats, not just the traditionalist boat. And as the tide goes out and the level of the water goes down, so do all the boats go down as well. At present, it seems that the tide of the political right is still rising globally. We you know, I mean occasionally something happens in the opposite direction. Everybody thought that the last Spanish election was going to bring the right into power, and it turned out that actually the right got less votes than people expected. So it doesn't happen the whole time. There, there are waves on top of the tide, and, and waves go both ways. But I mean, I think the tide is still rising. And I think that the more complex philosophies that float on that tide are therefore going to become more and more important. I mean, this is quite important to to note that traditionalism is a very complex philosophy. It's not something that is ever going to become a mass ideology. It's too difficult. The writings are too difficult. The ideas are too difficult, but it's a philosophy which has often, so often, shown its power to attract and inspire intellectuals and political activists. And I think that is going to carry on.
1: Well, thank you very much indeed for explaining it to us so clearly. It's a, it's a fascinating book. And it's a great topic. It's a it's a it's a really clear book you've written and it, it runs through the whole history of this and as you say you're you're looking ahead too. So thank you very much indeed.
2: Thank you.